You're listening to the best of the Tom Bernard Show.com, brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Who, me? <laughs> so I'd like to know if I was married to a whore piece of shit. <laughs> you could just look at her license. My. Special stripe. That was amazing. Oh my gosh. Coming by sweet corn, potatoes, onions, pickles. It's not how you use them, sir. <laughs> it's really sickening that anybody would be into radio this much. It is ungoddamn believable. I think I'm going to hell. I just realized it. Thank you, Tom. You're just delicious. why I drink. We're here today with Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant. Michael, what's going on? You know, we keep getting phone calls, and it's interesting because people try to handle a lot of stuff on their own, or they try to talk to the adjusters, or they wait, um, and they think maybe it'll cost them money if they talk to me. And, you know, we tell them it's free to talk to us. Um, I go through what their rights are, and, you know, we try to help them as best we can. We don't sign everyone up. Sometimes I just give them advice, and they go from there and then call us back later. But the key is is that they don't know all their rights or they're not told all their rights by the adjuster, and that's one of the things we try to make sure that they get, you know, they get that understanding uh, so they can help themselves and their families the best they can. And the number is? Is 800-770-7008. Or at the website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Brad, Sean, Bryant, Michael Bryant, thank you. Seeking justice for the injured. Brad, Sean, Bryant. Episode of the best of the Tom Bernard podcast brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Kicking off the show this week, we have Eric Rivenis talking about the topic of his new book, Dirty Doc Ames in a Dark Side of Minneapolis History. Next on the best of. Good times. What makes them a good times, Melina? Oh, this is uh, We Are Family. Oh, I thought it was good times. These are the good times. Well, it's the exact same yeah, song. They're kind of yeah. the same song. <laughs> I mean, it's the exact same song. We are family. Why are you playing We Are Family? Uh, siblings Day. Oh, that's true, it is Siblings Day. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Rivenis talking about the book Dirty Doc Ames. Well, no, Eric, you can't get We already have Dirty Doc Basham. There you so. go. Thank you. Right. <laughs> he goes, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis, the story of a mayor and his police department run amok and of the stunning political collapse that helped launch the progressive era, the story of Albert Alonzo Doc Ames is perhaps the greatest political scandal in Minnesota history. As mayor of Minneapolis, Ames exposed the city to national humiliation, helped jumpstart an era of reform. So it's his fault that Minnesota's nuts. 
<laughs> it, it was a temporary era of reform. Uh, Kid Can would eventually move in, and uh, the Jewish gangster syndicate. That's what and, I thought. Yeah, it would all go downhill again one more time. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, tell me the story of Dirty Doc Ames. This stuff fascinates me. Oh my goodness, it's such a it's such an epic story, and it, it was really hard to get it into this this book. I had limitations as to how much I could actually write, but I mean, this guy was a was was quite a character. I mean, he he was a politician for 25 years. He started as a Republican, switched switched to the Democratic Party, then became a populist, then became an independent, and then finally somehow weaseled his way back into the Republican Party for his final fourth <laughs> term as mayor. And oh it was God. this epic rise and fall of this this guy who was just so narcissistic, so arrogant. On one hand, had incredible political ambitions. But at the same note, he, he was a, a medical doctor and he was, was some say he was one of the, the, the best surgeons in Minnesota. And he... Um, donated his, his medical time for free. Um, he, he saw patients that couldn't afford to pay, and he was able to build up this base of followers based on that. Um, they were called the Dinner, Dinner Pale Brigade, this group of followers who would follow him to, to hell and back. And he used that, that following to, to get, his, get himself into his final term as mayor of Minneapolis in 1901. Uh, he took advantage of something called, um, well, the Minnesota legislature passed a, a a direct primary law, which basically said, finally, ringsters, um, old-time Tammany Hall-style politicians cannot control Republican and Democratic, you know, endorsements. The primaries are open to everyone. So he took his following, and um, the Republican Party was not very happy about this, <laughs> but he he ran and he actually um, be, he actually got the endorsement as as the Republican candidate for mayor in 1900, and then he went in. He proceeded to fire half of the police force. He filled them with criminals, with people who had supported him, um, gave them all plum positions, and then proceeded in the next year and a half to to make as much money as he possibly could um, before he was finally taken down. No, somebody that was greedy? Hard to believe. I've never <laughs> heard of that before. <laughs> God. Yeah. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Yeah, I have to ask you a question. This this is not directly related to your story, but I suppose in a way it, it may be. Uh, and, and then somebody did ask me a question. Joe uh, asked me the question, did he just say Jewish mobster? Yes, the organized crime in Minnesota was not Italian. It was Jewish. And a guy named Kid Can Blumenfeld was uh, the man who ran the whole show. Actually, Bugsy Siegel spent a lot of time in Minnesota mm-hmm. because of Kid Can. And people don't know that. They don't know that that's the truth. Right, exactly. Yeah, and he would come in the 1920s and 30s. And he, yeah, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish mob ran Minneapolis, and the, yep. the Irish ran, you know, St. Paul, basically. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they ran St. Paul. That's exactly right. But I, I have to ask you a question because you look, you know, very knowledgeable of politics. I was born in Long Prairie, Minnesota. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, mostly on the north side. What is it about Minnesotans? Why are we so different from the rest of the country that we're not just Democrats, we're Democrat farmer laborers? We're not just Republicans, 
We're independent Republicans. Why do we have to be different than everybody else out there? Why is that with medicine? What is that? Well, I think from what I remember, and that's a really good question, um, I think the ind- people, I, I think that the GOP became independent Republicans because the Democrats became the Democratic Farmer Labor Party and they wanted their own, right. their own unique identity as well. But yeah, the DFL is basically a combination of two parties, the Farmer Labor Party and the Democratic Party that, that finally combined right. and joined forces. Yeah. But every place else, they're Republicans and they're Democrats. No, nope, not in Minnesota, they're not. No, 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 no. <laughs> I guess we Actually, like to be special, yeah. Well, with, with the hist- We do like to be special. With the history of 12-step recovery in Minnesota, they should have been the dependent Republicans, or the independent, the dependent Republicans. Yeah, there you go. Or codependent Republicans. <laughs> we had Minnesota uh, was one of the few states, I suppose if you dug deeper, you would find out we wouldn't be one of the few states, but we were one of the few states who had a card-carrying communist as a governor, governor that Floyd B. Olson was a communist. And people, I don't think, realize that. That um, all the way back then, and that was that was just after this era you're talking about, wasn't it? Wasn't he governor just after 1900? Yeah, yeah, in the in the 1930s, um, he he helped. 1930s, um, yeah. yeah, during the Minnesota or the, the the infamous Minneapolis truck strike in 1935. Right, and just before, he died of cancer, um, but there were rumors that he was going to be um, FDR's vice presidential uh, candidate. Right, um, but then he died, and of course. Many died, unfortunately. But they still have a statue there on Highway 55, Olson Highway. (laughs) Back when I was at the University of Minnesota, yeah, um, I took a history class taught by High Berman, I think his name was. I don't know if you... you, High Berman, sure, I know High Berman. And he he said that Floyd B. Olson was a a big-time partier and carouser and had a cabin up north. No. Yeah, I I remember that distinctly. (laughs) Yeah, he he definitely liked um, to let loose, for sure. So... So, Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis. What was the first year that he was mayor of Minneapolis? He was first uh, mayor of Minneapolis in 1876. Um, he, he was mayor for th- 25 years? Yeah, f- four terms, 1876, oh 1884. 1886, he almost became governor. He, he was like a half a percentage point uh, away from becoming really? governor. Yeah, I mean, he was... He, He's, he's a really, really complicated character, a really, really fascinating guy. I mean, it's like a du- dual personality. He was so compassionate to the poor on one hand, but then he was so politically ambitious and so full of himself, almost to the point of delusion, you know? Um, it, it's, he had a really interesting love-hate relationship with the press. And, and when he, we, he became mayor in 1901 for this final fourth term, he surrounded himself with the the biggest bunch of idiots and criminals. I mean, you can imagine. <laughs> One, he he chose as as captain as a captain of a police a guy by the name of Coffee John Fichette, uh, and Coffee John Fichette owned um, and operated a restaurant called uh, Coffee John's Oyster Grotto on Nicollet Avenue, and he was he was. Um, he had been um his head had been injured um by some um sh- um some shrapnel during the civil war and he Ooh. yeah he had this crazy swing i mean as far as his temperament goes and whenever anyone complained about 
the food in his restaurant. I mean, he would like beat them on the streets of Minneapolis. <laughs> he would chase after them. <laughs> At one point, he somebody said refused to pay or, or didn't want to pay for for um, something that they had that they had ordered, and he he and his wife locked them in the restaurant and wouldn't let them out until they paid. But he was the the captain of police, and and he had no police experience. I mean, he, just one of these guys that that were in. Um, Doc Ames inner circle, and his job was to sell police positions. So, if if a police officer, if a guy wanted to be a cop on the police force, um, they came to him. They had to pay him two hundred dollars, I believe, and he would pass that on to Doc Ames. Doc Ames, and so they, so guys that wanted to be on the force actually had to to pay. And two hundred dollars is a lot of money in nineteen oh one, when the average oh, yeah. salary for a for an officer I think was about a thousand dollars a year. So that's a substantial amount of money that they were, and that was just one way that they were making money. They were in collusion with with uh, gamblers. Um, they were inviting gamblers, professional gamblers, all from across the country, the best gamblers, to come into town and to set up con games, where they would fleece rubes, suckers from that were coming in from out of town, and then they would split the money with with um, Doc Ames, his brother. His brother was the chief of police. <laughs> if that's right, not if that's right. not nepotism, I don't know what is. You know, and he was a disgraced uh, officer um, of the 13th Minnesota, um, supposedly disgraced. I, I think I prove in the book that he wasn't he wasn't the coward that people made him out to be, but he was part of the famed 13th Minnesota during the Spanish American War that stormed the the uh, town of Manila and and b- when we basically took. Um, the Philippines back from the Spanish and then started fighting the Filipino insurgents. So his, his brother was the, the chief of police and he was this um, vacillating kind of weak, weak-willed character that, that had no business running a police department. So it's just this crazy cast of characters that he surrounds himself with that, and everything just implodes, you know. And, and Doc Ames eventually goes on the run. He becomes a fugitive. <laughs> so, so part yeah, of the book is yeah, part of the book is just is, is following his his escapades and the the county sheriff's department sent deputies after him and were chasing him around and it's just nuts. When did the big milling era in Minnesota start? Wasn't that was that in the mid eighteen hundreds? Yeah, yeah, that was. So, uh, yep. The, the last half yeah, of the, the 19th century. Yeah. So right, right well, after. Right, right after Minnesota became a state. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Became, became so a really, state. this this was all going on where Minnesota or Minneapolis, Minnesota was all sort of Wild West kind of thing. All these things were just starting right. here. There was not a huge population. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and Doc there, Ames. There was tons of money. Doc Ames came with his family when he was just a boy. He was one of the first. 12 families in what is now Minneapolis. So he saw Minneapolis from the very, very beginning. He, he came in uh, the early, early 1850s when there was like no one here, and Minneapolis was a tiny village. Yeah. Where did he come from? From Garden Prairie, Illinois. His, his father was... Oh, do- from Illinois. Yeah, his father was Dr. Alfred Elisha Ames, who was actually worked for Stephen Douglas, who was the, the famed um, um, senator from Illinois that, that had the... The, you know, the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, of course, are famous now. So his father had been a, a longtime uh, Democrat, and he became a Republican. But he, he kind of swayed with the, with the breeze, you know. He, he only became a, a, a Democrat because the Republicans didn't, didn't want to give him the endorsement for his, his first term as mayor. So the Democrats were like, hey, you're, pop, you're a popular guy. Come on over here, you know. <laughs> so, 
So yeah. did, did they? Did these people all arrive in Minnesota at about the same time because uh, the lumber industry, the milling industry, uh, you know, the growth of wheat, the Mississippi was right there. To this day, if you go down the Mississippi, Catherine and I took a trip down the Mississippi on a, on a riverboat, uh, what, a year and a half ago now? Something like that? Oh, that's cool. And you do realize Mississippi River is owned by the Cargills. Oh. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, so did they did they anticipate all this with the, with the milling and the, the farming and the lumber and all the rest, that this was going to be, because of the Mississippi River, this was going to be a very, very wealthy port, a very wealthy city, parasities, whatever? No, right away they didn't. But, I mean, St. Anthony Falls, when they first arrived, was considered one of the one of the great wonders, natural wonders of the United States of America. It was absolutely gorgeous. Oh, really? Yeah. And there was a little a little island called Spirit Island that sat just below the falls yeah. that was, um, you know, um, that the Native Americans considered a sacred site. And not long after they came, you know, um, like we were talking about, 1860s, 1870s, they started to, to, to get that St. Anthony Falls and turn it into this... You know, it started building sawmills and gristmills all around the area right. and, and just completely transformed it. Yeah. And destroyed it, basically. Destroyed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Pillsbury, the Pillsbury's made their fortunes, you know, here. Oh, and, yeah. And a Pillsbury actually ran against Doc and beat him um, after a second term. So the Pillsbury's are part of this, this story, too. We will be right back more with Eric Rivenis right after this Tom Bernard show. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. Back to the city and back to my life. Back to the city and back to life. Back to the city. Get me back to Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis. That was Eric Rivenis on the best of... Coming up next, Mike Kaplan was in studio. And he just really... Really couldn't get enough winter this year, so he came here to do some comedy. Next! On 26th Street, I was 20 years old. I dreamed about my first first Avenue show. I skipped a lot of stones. Send in the clowns. Not the ones with guns, though. Isn't it bliss? What a voice. You know, just don't hear singers like this anymore. All right, we're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom, we'll be back with you on Monday, sitting in studio with me from Acme Comedy Club this weekend, Mike Kaplan. Mike, uh, what time are the shows? Uh, tonight at 8 and 10.30, and uh, tomorrow, Saturday, at 8 and 10.30. Cool. So there are a few tickets still available. Can they find it online at Acme Comedy Club? I think it's acmecomedycompany.com, and I'm sure that you can go online, get tickets, and uh, and, and or call the club. Or I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know how many are left, but get them quick. I don't know. You I are. They didn't tell me. <laughs> You're a lucky man, right? Oh, you God. just came here from uh, New York, which is now, what, at 76 degrees? Yeah, thank God. I, I love winter. I love being cold and rained on and having it be like a snow emergency. I don't even know if I might be here forever. There's a, could a be. storm coming. When, I like, you know, I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. Winter is here. Yes. So. Yeah, and it doesn't leave Minnesota. No. It holds us, and it's... 
tightly iced talons. Like a zombie. At least the good thing is Minnesotans will go out. We, we're not afraid of going out and having fun on a, on a snowy, crappy day. I actually sincerely hadn't thought of that. That's wonderful. Yeah, you could go to like, you know, the, somewhere in the south where it's normally warm all the time and mm-hmm. it rains a little bit. And you're like, well, I guess everybody's... Uh, Staying in the night. It's a ghost town. Afraid. It's. I love that scene from, I think it was, what was it, about two, three years ago, Mike, when... Atlanta got an inch and a half of snow, and it looked like uh, The Walking Dead. Ha. Oh yeah! Did you see that, Mike? I, I, I forgot. I got two mics here. Oh yeah! There was they they got like I think it was an inch, inch and a half of snow, and they were showing video footage, and everybody in Minnesota was laughing hysterically because cars are pulled off to the sides of the road, people are huddled and they're sleeping in Seven Elevens. People wouldn't go down the highway because they couldn't drive in the inch, inch and a half of snow, and they were eating each other because yeah, they couldn't exactly. get to the grocery Very store. Much yeah. Like that, uh, so you get you get to travel and see all over the world. I do. Yeah, where's the where's the far the farthest reaches you've gone now? Uh, I went to Australia a couple of years ago. Oh, very cool. Uh, that was fun to be a part of the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and this summer I get to go to I'm going to be doing a show at the Edinburgh Fringe Fest over in Scotland. So that'll be exciting. I go to Canada a fair amount. I've been to Alaska. I think that's like the farthest north that I've been. Yeah, but that's just parts of America, really. You're right. Yeah. I'm sorry that I answered your question in a boring way. Uh, well, I flew over parts of Canada. I went to Peru once. Uh, that was that was exciting. I did not do comedy there. No. No, I would guess that would be hard to translate. Uh, I mean, I would, I would, I could definitely talk right. uh, in the the English language that I speak, and probably, I mean, there's certainly more people. Uh, whenever I travel anywhere that English isn't the uh, the the number one language, right. there's way more people that understand me than I understand them. So, right, that's uh, what we found. You know, I go, I'm going to Romania this September ah. with a bunch of our listeners, and we're going to go kind of follow all of these haunted trails of, of where Vlad the Impaler was known to exist. Ooh, sure. That's like the castles and the, such. The Dracula inspiration. Right. right. And they said, uh, the, they were funny, the guides are like, listen, don't be the ugly Americans here because they may not speak English, but they understand it very clearly and they know exactly what you're saying and you really just don't want to be that guy in this country. Especially if you are doing a horrible Romanian accent pretending. Right. Don't tell them that you vaunt to do anything. <laughs> no. I, and actually, in Romania, the people that do speak English are more clear and easy to understand than when I've been to Ireland and Scotland when they're speaking English. I have no clue what three-quarters of the conversations I had while I was out and abroad. This podcast brought to you by Romania. <laughs> Everybody, check out Fly Romania. Live in Romania. Enjoy. Now, Ro- Romania? Ro- I don't even know if I'm saying it right. My apologies. Go, Romania. <laughs> GoRomania.com. What... Uh, it's are, Romania mania here. Are you are you uh, superstitious at all? I know a lot of entertainers kind of carry some of that with them. Uh, I guess that I would... Uh, short answer, no. And I don't know whose joke this is, but long answer, no. <laughs> that somebody, somebody's really funny and said that, and I don't remember who it is, and whoever you are, good work. But, I mean, I guess we, I feel... Superstitions when you think about like you know if you walk under a ladder or if you oh I'm I'm looking at the Atlanta, Atlanta. uprising <laughs> week, yeah, a couple of years ago um, I think that there's no way to know like if there's anything specific like you know if you were wearing certain clothes and a thing happened like right. you know there's certainly all kinds of 
things that happen that are coincidences that you don't know about what might be you know the reasons for things that so i guess what superstitions do you like what's an example of a superstition that you'd like to know about and the answer is probably no i'm not well i'm just yeah i'm curious because I've, I've come in contact with a lot of entertainers over the years and and i've watched them prior to them going out to either sing or perform or do comedy and sometimes they've got rituals that they do prior to what they they'll always go up and they'll start with a glass of scotch before they go out on stage mm. or they have to have two bottles of evian separated by six inches on the stools and you're like what and he's like dude i'm just telling you every time it has not been that way my show goes to hell in a handbasket and here's what i would say about that is i mean i do have some like rituals or traditions in my like daily experience like i get up and i meditate for 20 minutes most mornings unless there's some reason if i have to catch an early flight or have to do something you know go get up early for radio and then maybe i'll do it later but that for me is not a matter of superstition it's a matter of you know there's it actually does something like for me for my consciousness for and if i didn't do it i might not feel the same way that i did if i did do it but i don't think it's a matter of luck and so similarly i think if you have things that have comforted you you know if having you know a certain talisman or a bottle of water or you know crystal or so whatever it is that makes you feel the way that it makes you want to feel uh if you don't have that thing then you don't have that feeling and that feeling could be the thing that makes you feel like you aren't having the experience that you wish you would like it, it could be you know a kind of placebo effect or a self-fulfilling right. prophecy that you're, so it's not to say that not having the thing caused you know somebody in the audience to be a bad audience member but it could just affect your you know your mood and your psyche and your emotional state which is also a powerful thing so i think that like the same way that you know we might not have free will but it makes sense to act as though we do just because just in case we do it's good to act like we do <laughs> uh but if we don't and you're like well i guess i'm just gonna lay here well, then you were fated to lay there. Well, get up and do pretend like you're doing whatever you want to do. And, you know, it's a kind of like fake it until you make it thing. Right. And, you know, because otherwise, if it's all fake, then it doesn't matter what you do. And but if it isn't all fake, then it does matter what you do. So why not do the things that you want to do and that make you feel good? And as long as it's not, you know, a uh, as far as your rituals go, if they're like if it's like, yeah, I just put I put the water here like fine. Great. I don't I'm not going <laughs> to tell anyone not to put water where they want to put water. Uh, but if they you know, if it if it causes them great degrees of, uh, you know, oh, uh, you know, like I, I want people to feel good, feel good and uh, comfortable and fulfilled. And if your rituals help you do that, then wonderful. And if they don't, hey, do whatever you want. Now, it kind of surprises me that you do meditation mm -hmm. because a lot of entertainers I know and and uh, engage with their minds going a thousand miles an hour. I can't quite. I've tried meditation on numerous accounts and, and I can't get my mind to shut up. I can't. It's just constant chatter. Whether I use like guided meditation. Oh, yeah. And you've got that. You're on a nice plane and the clouds are surrounding you. There are no troubles in the world. And then my mind starts going, well, there is a fact I haven't paid my electric bill. Is that late yet? And I can't shut that, that motor off. Do you have trouble with that? Or is that what's trained you so uh, that you can maybe I, plug in a little bit better to the creativity? I would say uh, that I was like, I, I used to think that I wouldn't be able to, mm -hmm. you know, sit still, do whatever I, the stereotype or the caricature of meditation that I thought it was. I didn't know what it was. I was like, why do I want to sit and just be quiet when I'm, you know, there are always things to do and places to go and, you know, t bad TV shows to watch. Like, I can't <laughs> meditate for 20 minutes. I have to put my, put crap in my mind. And, uh... Now, now I'll watch one fewer bad TV show a day and meditate. <laughs> but sincerely, uh, like the the guided meditation that I use is the app Headspace, uh, which is basically this guy. 
you know, gives you, there's different packets that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the initial one, he's basically, I think it's really good for, it was good for me as a person who'd never meditated for him to be like, this is, I'm just going to tell you like, you know, to, how to sit, you know, like sit, basically sit, sitting up in a comfortable way and breathe and then focus on your breath and sometimes visualize things. But mostly like in the beginning, it's like just focusing on breathing in and breathing right. out. And then he's like, if you get distracted, that's okay. Just note when you get distracted, if you're like, oh, I got distracted. Now I'm back. Like, and it's a matter of sort of, you know, getting to this clear blue sky that exists within you and like all of your thoughts and emotions and ideas and things that come across your, you know, consciousness's view. Those are like clouds and you can just like, oh, there's that cloud and let it pass. Like, there's that one and let it pass. And then eventually, like, I think for me, it has helped like train me to like be able to do that in life to not, you know, dwell in things that I can't deal with at the time or, you know, just be like, well, that is something that I'll address later. And I specifically, I went, I had a massage a couple days ago uh, and it, I don't have massages frequently. I probably had like, you know, a single digit number in my entire life. <laughs> right. But I remember the first one I ever got was probably, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Like I just started doing comedy maybe and was, I remember being anxious about the fact that I wouldn't have like my notebook or my recorder that I'm like, I'm going to be lying here for like 45 minutes at least 45 minutes an hour. And I'm, I usually have thoughts that I want to record. I usually have, I, what if I have an idea? I don't want to forget it. I don't want to lose it. And so I remember thinking about that during that time and it, it sort of, you know, was counter to the idea of the massage of, which is to relax, you know, to make me feel, you know, calm and comforted and good. And I was like, what if I think of things? Oh no. (laughs) And, uh, I feel good now that, you know, like a decade later, uh, after some meditation practice, after some growth, uh, just, you know, personally, and other experiences that led me to a place where during this massage, I now I now understand that also every time that I meditate, I don't, if I have a thought that is like, oh, that could be a joke idea or like a life philosophy thought or some something that I might want to remember, I'm like, well, if it's, I'll either remember it or I won't. And if I don't remember it, when, when I get out of the massage or out of the meditation state, then that's fine. I won't even remember that I forgot it. I won't even know that it existed, and that's okay. And if it was, like, a valuable, important thing, then probably a lot of those I will remember. I'll be like, what did I think? Oh, yeah, that's the thing that I thought. And I can also sort of now have... I don't know, like I have, I've read about memory palaces, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, ways you can visualize things to not forget them. And for me, sometimes I, like, I think while I was at this massage, I thought of, like, four things... And they, they started with, the first three started with the letters like B, N, and K. And then I thought of one that started with A. And I'm like, just remember bank. That's all I have to remember is bank. And then at the end of my session, I could remember the four things that I wanted to that I thought over the course of that hour. And if I hadn't, that would have been okay as well. Wow, look at you, Zen master. I mean... Do you I, find after you're done with these uh, meditations, does your creativity seem to come a little bit more easily? Maybe you're not as clouded, you, you're just more open and into it to it? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not positive because I've, creativity has never been, uh, like, you know, the problem. Like, I've never really had, like, writer's block. Like, I feel like I thought, like, maybe a few years into comedy, I came up with a great joke and then didn't come up with what I thought was as good a joke for, like, months. And I was like, was that it? Is that the last great joke that I'm ever going to write? And, you know, like, <laughs> three months later, I, I, you know, over the, it's sort of always an ongoing process where I'm like, oh, the thought that I had two weeks ago now becomes a, a great joke that I make, you know, two months from now. And so I can't just be, you know, evaluating every moment. Is this better? Is this, is this good? Is this good enough? Because that's going to, you know, drive me 
uh, bonkers. And do, do you ever get a, a, like that gem, that germ of a joke, and you're like, yes, yes, and you come to Minnesota and you haven't been to Minnesota before, and the the opening guy comes out and does a joke and, and almost hits exactly the same topic, and you're like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? And then I just have that guy, uh, you know, silently taken care of by a uh, clone. Yeah, <laughs> I dress up, and uh, I've said too much, but uh, certainly, I mean, I think the idea before I like, I mean, I tweeted something the other day and about gun control and somebody was like hey jim jeffries did that in his special and i was like oh well i guess i i won't tweet it again and i won't say it out loud because i didn't know that that particular thought had been said like there's so many of us there's so many comedians coming up with so many ideas all of the time like it would be ridiculous for this to not happen so exactly I, i feel like the goal is to for it to not to be you know, for me to not be too precious about like this is the idea that's going to send me skyrocketing. This is the number. <laughs> like also, like most of the ideas that I have, you know, are coming from my own. Uh, you know, I, this is a weird thing to say, like my own experience. But obviously, everybody is right. you know a human being experiencing not all similar things. But uh, I can I do my best to make everything my own and a thing that wouldn't be a thing that other people would say. Even though, of course, like for social justice issues or for you know those kinds of things that were you know people who are against racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia like we're you know everybody's drawing from the same pool of you know of topics uh so it might be that you come up with this if if there's a lot of people coming up with the same ideas about how to make society and the world and humans you know kinder uh then i'm fine and i'm, I'm okay with that uh, right. the, people yeah. can have those if you come up with a great joke about how to encourage kindness then i'm uh, i'm not going to be mad at you well and then listen comedians live kind of off of topical situations right not only your own life situations but what's going on in the world around you it would sure. be almost impossible to not have these kind of mental collisions where you're going to kind of be creative in the same vein as others it can be so but at least thankfully we have our families and dysfunctional lives to fall back on to make it our own right uh, thank goodness. <laughs> and also, we're all one, so all the ideas that we have are all of ours. Exactly. Let's. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then uh, we're going to be joined by uh, the guys from Dread Central. Great. Your horror movie uh, source for all the greatest ideas and what's going on in the world of horror, sci-fi, and, and action-adventure. And then we'll uh, we'll chat with them about that. And the movies, are you, are you timed out? Can you stay here with us into the next hour a little Happy bit? Happy to stay. Excellent. We'll do that. And you can check out Mike Kaplan at Acme Comedy Club tonight and tomorrow. Go check out the information online. We'll have a link up for it as well. Stay tuned. We've got more coming your way. I'm Dave Schrader, and this is The Top Bernard Show. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stormy, I go glam. I like it, boom, boom, damn. Take the man that says that I'm a stormy, stand somewhere down the lane. I like it, boom, boom, damn. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stormy, I go glam. I like it, boom, boom, damn. Take the man that says that I'm a stormy, stand somewhere down the lane. I like it, boom, boom, damn. That was Mike Kaplan on the best of. Coming up next, closing out the show, we're opening up the UFO! All the way back to episode 360 with AWA legend Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Next! Do you know why a gym? Got the term, the name Jumpin' Jim Brunzel? No, I do not. Because he's a college high jumper. Oh, record that. holder. What, what college? Well, actually, I, I was a high school uh, record holder. What at, high school? Uh, White Bear Lake. Oh, okay. And um, 
I used to have a real close friend. His name was Nick Hartzell. And we grew Nick up Hartzell. together. He went to Notre Dame yep. and uh, broke his ankle his freshman year, so didn't play. But uh, he was six four and a half at 12 years old, and I was like five seven. And we used to play basketball all the time on Saturdays, and he used to be able to, you know, rebound and everything. And sure. I, I told him, I said, one of these days, Nick, I'm going to be able to dunk. So I kept jumping and jumping and jumping. And uh, uh, Joe Suchere tells a story. He was also in our eighth grade class at St. Oh, Jude's okay. of the Lake in Montemita. Right. He said that I used to, uh, during a, a given point of the day, pull up my pants leg and flex my calf muscle <laughs> <laughs> to show him that that I was, you know. But I, I, I was I was gifted uh, in that I could could jump, and um, you know I was I like. High jumping, and it just was a natural thing for me to, you know, Vern Gagne said to me, do you think you can hit your hit my hand with your feet? So he, he put his hand out about oh, here, no. and by the end of the day, his hand was up here, and I, I could drop kick his really? hand. Yeah. But that story that story that you said about showing your calf when yes. you were 12 years old, that's the show. That's the that's the show in professional wrestling. That's a part of it. You just had that. It was, it's probably genetic for you, really, because that's that sh- because that's part of the part of the um, the entertainment, part of the excitement, and part of the build up to the match. I mean, you're always you know, there's always sort of posturing and everything like that. That well, I think I think that's a lot more now. So with Vince McMahon, because he, you know, uh, in ni- 1982 or so, when he took over for his dad, his dad passed away. He projected a a pro wrestling which he envisioned Mm -hmm. and he envisioned muscular young men that he could find a way to make as much money out of as possible so he'd everybody looked the same you know not everybody but some guys could you know uh, put on more mass and look better but he he had an affinity for a bodybuilding type wrestler and consequently he made you know guys a lot of money that were extremely muscular and that had no uh, bearing on what they could do in the ring yeah but boy i remember bruno san martino one time he was talking and he got all worked up started eating the microphone that's when i was a kid oh, yeah. so so it, it was around then they had a, oh, they yeah. have to have oh, a little bit of build up on well, these matches the were, otherwise it's not, it's not as much fun it's that's like, right that's to be right. honest with you it it kind of ruined it for me because when i grew up and you guys were wrestling i could still go you know maybe i i might want to do that but then you see these guys six six and you know two hundred and ninety pounds and it's all muscle, it's like I don't think I could do that. <laughs> you know? I think that and I don't watch wrestling yeah. very much anymore, but uh, occasionally I see it and what what uh, what I see is f- people in the ring doing all these magnificent moves with all these uh, athletic right. uh, moves yeah. and you know high whatever you want to call them, and none of them mean a thing because the guy goes down, the guy doesn't even cover him, and the guy pops right up like nothing happened. Right. Yeah. That's correct. What were we watching the other day? The Ring of Honor. It was in Florida. They were oh. they were smaller guys, but the stuff they could do yeah, they was could do oh, amazing. 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 Well, they're like acrobats. Well, yeah, they, are. they really yeah. were. Now, yeah. you, you, uh, you, when, you remember back when you were killer bees, yes. right? first guys to wear masks. That was a great gimmick. Yeah. First oh, guys really? ever to wear really? masks in the ring. That's right. No, and we yeah. were baby and faced. Brian Blair, Brian, right? Brian Blair okay. from Tampa, Florida. You guys pissed me off so bad. Why? <laughs> so I'd watch you, and you guys would do the shittiest things. You, yes, you would do the shittiest things because oh, you would change. Oh, we're just getting back at all these guys. With, with, the referee, with, a referee, with a referee had his back turned. 
They would uh, switch matches, masks, masks, and so they never knew who the tough guy was in the joint. And it was I love that. just was absolute cheating. It was, I, it was terrible I cheating. It was, it was I, the greatest, I hated that. Don, it was the greatest gimmick that at that time a young, uh, you know, sort of smaller tag team like Brian and I, we were both about 225, had that, you know, we could do a lot of stuff in the ring, but the fact that we could put those masks on was a great gimmick, you know, and, and I'll show you how much Vince McMahon liked us. You know, when you have something like that, you want to protect it. You know, you don't want to overdo it. You want to keep it for special times. Right. Well, I remember there was an eight-man tag match at Lake Placid, New York, and it was George the Animal Steel and Coco Beware, a little uh, black athlete who was very talented, and Brian and I, and at the end of the match, all four of us had those Dagon masks on, as if, you know, nobody could figure out who, who was who, because Brian and I had our yellow and black tights on. And there was a black guy. And, and then, <laughs> yeah, there's a black guy doing the bird in the middle, and then George the Animal Steel had the mask up eating the, uh, the turnbuckle. turnbuckle. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know when, one of the nicest York. guys ever, by the way, George Animal Steel. Terrifically nice man. Really? Just a great. He's a math teacher. Isn't he? Well, he was also a great high school football coach <laughs> yeah. in uh, yep. Michigan. Yep. Yeah, nice guy. He's really good. Down in Florida now. Yep. I just talked to him about probably th- three months ago. Jim Myers. Great, great guy. Just yep. a great guy. Sorry, Doc. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I mean, when, when Don confronted you with that, when he confronted you with uh, that behavior, you 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 came very you had you put you put on you put on the the to, you were right back in. He almost came across the table. He, he, he almost came in. He said, he said, "That's not true. That never happened." He just about he came so close because you realized that you, 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 I saw it in your eyes. That, that never happened. That I never happened. But I was just I was I was just being Gene Okerlund for a moment. Oh. That's all I was being. I was just I was accusing you of, of some illegal behavior. He was reaching for a chair. He was, he was the greatest too, Gene Okerlund. I, one, I oh, see yeah. him down in Florida, and and you know he's had some uh, real health issues in the last five ten years but uh, this guy was so good i mean marty o'neill was marty, marty. o'neill there was no other marty o'neill marty. but when uh, when gene took over he was so good i mean at remembering uh, and and giving uh, the, the 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 wrestler the opportunity to you know he'd feed him real good and bang and away to go and and that's why he he's considered the best yeah has been the best yeah. for 35 years. Great He's, part of it. And, and and a lot of the new guys, that's, they don't do that part well either. You know, when you guys would get It's all scripted, it, Tom. Yeah, it's all scripted. It's, you guys were they just... They have to memorize it. And I, one of the things that I do remember, let's say I'm seven, eight years old, nine years old or whatever. Well, I couldn't have been nine because I had, yeah, I didn't even see my grandfather for a long time, but I was like seven or eight years old. And I would get all frustrated and say to my grandpa... You know, when they're going to tag off, they get so close and they just can't seem to quite tag <laughs> off. You know, I was falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. I'm a little kid. I would get so frustrated. It's like, just reach out a little farther. <laughs> you know, my mom. Alligator my, arm. My, my mom and dad wouldn't let me watch wrestling. Oh, I, I remember my first exposure. My dad was in the Navy and we were down in Memphis, Tennessee, in a little town called Frazier. And they had a great little wrestling show over there and oh, they, had yeah. a, they had a fellow who was from minnesota his name was billy wicks he was the great baby face and then they had the arch villain 
was a fellow by the name of Sputnik Monroe, who was, <laughs> of course, of and, course. And Sputnik it was Monroe. 1957. Yeah. Of course. Do you remember very Sputnik Monroe? He, he was incredible. But my mom and dad wouldn't let me. They said, no, Jim, uh, too much violence, and it's uh, portrayed violence. We don't want you to watch. So they turn on Lawrence Welk. Right. Well, in 1979, I, I left the AWA, went down to North Carolina to work for the Mid-Atlantic. So I'm in the ring, and this is probably my second week, and none other who was refereeing was Sputnik Monroe. Sputnik Monroe. So as he was giving us the instructions, I was saying, 1959, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, you and Billy Wicks in the middle of the ring. And he looked at me like that, and he didn't talk to me the rest of the night. <laughs> But I love that. How do you come up with Monroe after Sputnik? <laughs> you know, Vladimir. Or, you know, yeah. Sputnik, Sputnik must have been Monroe. the thing. And no one heard Monroe after Sputnik. Yeah. That people would be so enraged and so infuriated by that insult. That well, you know, he, he had <laughs> peroxide gray hair, and then he had a black strip down the middle. So he, he almost looked like a skunk, but uh, <laughs> and, negative. And, and he skunk. was a huge heel for. Decades down. He made a lot of money. The heels were the greatest. I mean, that's well, that's not necessarily true because it's just playing the the parts. Everybody had their part. It was just it was just terrific to watch the entire thing. I miss it a lot. Jim and I were just talking about the fact the last time we saw one another was when Jesse was running for for mayor of Brooklyn Park. He was running for mayor of Brooklyn Park, and we were at Edinburgh Golf Course. Alex wants something from mom. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. Oh, here we go. Is anyway, <clears throat> so, so Jesse had called me, and he called Scott Studwell, and sure. he, it was Studwell, you, and me. <laughs> and he called us, uh, you know, come on out and endorse me out at, uh, we're going to be at Edinburgh, come on out there. And so Scott did his bit, and you did your bit, and then I came up and, you know, and I give it the, and the next mayor of Brooklyn Park, ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Ventura. First question, well, what do you buy? think about the building we're in right now, this golf course that was funded by the taxpayers here at Brooklyn Park? What do you think of the place? He goes, we should have never bought it. <laughs> I said, I just endorsed a guy that says bought it. <laughs> so this is all kind of your fault. It was my <laughs> fault. You're absolutely right about that. Now and now he, he will not talk to me anymore. I can't imagine why. I don't he think he listens to the show, joke. I'm guessing. <laughs> so he could rip the piss out of everybody else, but you rip him, and that's just like, oh, my God, it's the mortal sin. Yeah. Did you happen to that's read his right. latest book? On the Kennedy assassination? No. Well, it's funny because there was a period of time in the 80s or so that, see, when I was going to college at the U in the late Mm -hmm. 60s, I went to uh, a seminar by Mark Lane, who was the attorney who represented Lee Harvey Oswald in the Warren Commission. Rushed to Judgment. Exactly. And he had the movie. So I watched that night. I became very very interested and over the course of 30 years i probably read 50 60 books Mm -hmm. on it so jesse and i were at a seminar on the kennedy assassination a long time ago but i just wanted to say this his book has got a a lot of very substantiated facts concerning the assassination and i thought it was i matter of fact i tried to i had a card with his wife he never gives out his telephone number but terry gave me her number and this was years ago and i went through everything i just wanted to call her right to compliment him because i thought the book was mm-hmm. well done mm-hmm. but i couldn't find the card so 
And, and now he's down in Mexico, so we probably won't see him for a year. Who in the hell is going to call him that he won't go to give out his phone number? Who's going to call you? Well, oh, I don't want any calls from the president or anything like that. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, this was part of a, a parish deal out in uh, St. Jude's of the Lake. It was part of an auction that we had become a part of, and it was a progressive dinner. Oh, and yeah, it was really yeah. well done, and, and we had a big limousine, and everybody would go to different houses and have a little bit to eat and a little bit to drink. So finally, at the end of the night, we're six blocks from Jesse's place out in Pine Tree. So I said, you know, when I had a snootful, I said, you know, why let's jump in the let's jump in the limo and we'll go over and we'll, you know, get Jesse. Sure. So the limo pulls up and I ring the bell and all of a sudden Jesse gets on there and he says, Hello. I says, Jesse, it's Brunzi. What do you want? I says, Well I'm He said, What do you want? Yeah, that's what he said. So I, I said, Jesse, I said what do you want? I said I'm with some a group. There's four couples here that were involved in a progressive dinner for a fundraiser for St. Jude's of the Lake in Montemita. And I said, I, I haven't seen you for a little bit. And I just said, you know, as long as we're so close, we might as well come over and see you. And he's got a great big gated right, place, you know, with right. a lot. So all of a sudden, he gets back on the intercom and he says, Brunzi, he says, my back's hurt. So I'm going to send Terry out. So Terry comes out and talks to me. And my wife Mary. It's the middle of winter. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was in it was in the summer. But I thought, Jesus, Jesse, why didn't you just come out? And I know talk, what for is God's the sake? big deal? Come out and talk. He just has gotten so weird, and it was that damn governorship that made him so nuts. He wasn't that bad before the governor thing happened, but as soon as he became governor, he went kind of goofy. He and I used to get along. I mean, Catherine and, and Terry used to hang out once in a while, go to lunch and whatever. We did. But as soon as he became governor, he just got really bizarre like that. Wouldn't come out. What do you want? You know, come on. I know. And it's it's too bad because Jesse, I, I mean, in, in the professional wrestling business, he was so good at promoting himself yes. through his – because he actually believed everything he said about himself. <laughs> he, he did. did. He right. did. And, no, you're absolutely right. And to be honest, and I'm sure he might agree, maybe not with me, but – he wasn't that very good athletically in the ring. He was sort no. of clumsy. Better commentator. And, He's a yes, great commentator. he was a great commentator. He, was, he made yeah. a lot of guys look good at, yep. through his verbiage, and he yep. was great. But as far as being in the ring, and I know they, he was a little tentative on getting you know hurt. Getting hurt. Yep. So you know, and and God bless him. He's done well for himself, and it's, it's just too bad that his ego uh, prevents him from having more friendships. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That's exactly the way I look at it. It's just too bad that it happened, and just. I don't know. I guess it's, he's not the only one that's ever happened to, and I guess it'll happen in the future. But I, I, like I said, we used to. His daughter Jade used to babysit for. Us. She used to babysit Andy and and our daughter Alex. So you know, we go pick her up because we he lived on, the, on that farm right out there on thir- County Road Thirty, mm-hmm. out in Maple Grove. I guess that still is. I think so we lived right down the road about six seven miles. We'd come mm-hmm. and pick her up, and she'd babysit, and so we'd see Terry and Jesse, and it was a great deal. But. That was the deal. All of a sudden, it was, what do you want? It's like, what? Well, he's pretty much a loner now because yeah, I, I, I've, out in Vanus Heights now in White Bear, I, I go into various uh, establishments, and they'll say that Jesse came in by himself to yeah. the GNC and bought this, and then Jesse came into himself to work out, and then Jesse went came in by himself to get this and that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I sort of feel bad for him because... 
I understand. There's not that many, you know, friendships. I'm, I'm sure he feels that no one understands him because yeah. no one understands him. <laughs> <laughs> it might be it might be a result of uh, closed head injuries. Maybe as a personality change, well, as a result of you uh, getting your bell yeah. rung a couple times because, yeah, you know, you, you know, you can get you can get beat up a little bit when you're in the ring. Yeah. Well. We used to fly in a small plane that Vern Gagne had. It was a Navajo chieftain. It was a seven-passenger. And Bobby Heenan and I would sit in the back, and we were scared to death of these small planes. Jesus. You know, they, just, they had oh, yeah. a retired uh, Air Force pilot, and the son of a gun had, wouldn't deviate between two points. If there was a thunderstorm, he'd go right through the center oh, of it you know, to evade going through. So Bobby and I would drink this franzi of wine before the match. <laughs> oh, you know, the box of wine, and we'd be... And then on the way yeah, back, it would be vodka or rum. But then sure. Jesse would sit up, and, you know, he'd always have his leg going like this. Oh, yeah. And I remember Bobby had a snoot full, and he leaned over at me, and he says, Jimmy, he says, do you honestly believe that that young man right there could swim underwater and, and, and tie two bombs together and get back without killing himself? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty good point, actually. You know, it, it was one of those situations. Obviously... Growing up in North Minneapolis, a lot of wrestlers were either from Irondale, White Bear Lake, Robbinsdale, or North Minneapolis. That's where they all got. Well, Jesse was from South Minneapolis, yep. but but um, so I knew a lot of the guys growing up. Like I miss Mike Hegstrand a lot. He was just what a goofball. I know it. He used to sit and argue with Catherine. It was just they'd argue politics. It was hilarious. But I, you know, but a lot of guys like that. I mean, all these guys died so young. Did they know it? I mean, at some point, everybody saw it coming, didn't they? Well, here's the problem, and 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 I fault um, Vince with this a little bit is that first of all, when you worked for the WWF back in the early '80s, it wasn't like any other territory. Mm-hmm. There was 26 territories before Vince took over. Then actually, he was the only one. You know, they had. Uh, you know, Ted Turner's a little bit in the right, late 80s right. and 90s. But what Vince did, he had 60 fellows working for him. He wrestled, they, We would wrestle 27 days a month. Oh, God. And I have – and this was on for three years straight. And we'd be on the road for – I remember one time we went 40 straight days without a day off. So – and it's not, it's not close to each other. I mean, we had – I – I had almost a million miles on Northwest alone. Yeah. And you'd start off in, in uh, Houston, and then you'd go up to Vancouver, and then you'd go right down the uh, the West Coast, and then you'd go from uh, San Diego to Arizona, and then you'd go all the way out to Maine. And then you'd go crisscross. And, and oh, this went on. God. So Rolling. what happened was a lot of the guys liked to party. They liked to drink. And a lot of the guys wanted to impress Vince, so they took steroids. So steroids gives you... I took steroids off and on for 20 years. Well, I, didn't and I, never, I never I tested didn't uh, positive either, so I don't know. Maybe the testing wasn't right. But uh, I, I took a, what they call a clinical dose. I'd take it for like six weeks and then be off of it for You'd six weeks. You'd inject it? I did injections and orals. Yeah, no, and and very, I, it scared me because I know how you feel with it. You become... Uh, very aggressive. Yeah. And uh, what happened was that the wrestlers who took steroids, over a period of time, you develop little muscle tears, and then you can get injured, mm. and these injuries sort of mass themselves because of the steroids. Yeah. So then what happens, 
you have the schedule. You don't dare say to Vince, geez, I'm hurt. I can't, I can't right. wrestle. So then you get painkillers. So then you take painkillers, and then you're mixing booze, uh, steroids, and painkillers. Well, then you can't sleep at night. And then they throw in a little cocaine, too, which was oh, yeah, very prevalent cocaine. in the 80s to no keep it going. It. So then they started throwing in uh, muscle relaxants and tranquilizers <laughs> and sleeping pills. Doc, how are we so, doing so far? <laughs> so then... <laughs> like a speedball. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. yeah so like Michael and that's, Jackson. And that's what happened. That's why so many of these guys, you know, God bless them, Kurt Henning. Kurt, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, there was... Matter of fact, I almost brought this over today. I was looking through some memorabilia, and I have this, uh, this little dog <laughs> that okay. She's staring at him. She's under <laughs> the table just staring. Every year we get a letter Bella. from uh, Vince McMahon <laughs> saying that if you have a drug problem or an alcohol problem, oh, really? we will uh, pay for your full uh, treatment because he had so many guys die, and it yeah, was a direct relationship because they were supposed to be policing. But I, the, what I fault Vince for so much, even though he did have drug testing, he never had a fellow come up there and say, if you take this drug and mix it with this drug and mix it with alcohol, this is what's going to happen to you. Right. That's, that's what happened to so many of them. Mike died at, what, 42, I think he was. And he uh. died down in, down in Florida. Kurt wasn't much older than that, was he? No. He's about and then boss man Ray Trailer and uh, there was a lot of the guys. I mean, lots of. And I, we used to go up to the Iron Horse and Crystal. Oh yeah, and hang out with those guys. And it was, uh, you know, the Paddock, the Iron Horse, or whatever. And it was really interesting. What? Are we breaking? Well, no, are we didn't start. Jim, are you okay. are you Sorry. worried at all? At I, did you see uh, League of Denial? Yes, uh, I did. And uh, the close head injuries and the um, the dangers of repeated head injury and concussion. Are you worried about that for you and the rest of the professionals? Well, my wife is really concerned because you know she. I, I, I showed her this article about you know how much money that the NFLs put in, like five hundred and seventy-five, you know, million or whatever it was. Um, and when you look at some of the guys right now, Vern Gagne, Alzheimer's. Um, Red Bastine died of Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. uh, Mad Dog Vachon uh, died of Alzheimer's. Nick Bockwinkle has got dementia now. Oh. So many of the fellows of my era that, you know, and I had uh, about 5,000 matches in 28 years. And if you if you count that I probably threw at least one drop kick in every match, I was falling to the ground, um, you know, six feet or better every night. And hitting my head or hitting my shoulder, and and actually, I don't have too uh, good uh, many things to look forward to because my dad died of Alzheimer's, and both of his sisters died of Parkinson's. So, mm-hmm. you know that that is a, a worrying thing because uh, although now I, I I think you're having the wrestlers that you see in the WWE. I don't think their careers are going to last 20 years. No, I agree. They're so huge now. Well, that and the fact they're making so much money, hopefully they'll save it Mm -hmm. and invest it and be able to do something else because it's funny, and I was going to mention this to you, that out of all the guys that were in my era, and I'm talking about promoters too, none of them uh, were able to retire off their earnings. Oh, no, no, no. The closest one would be Jesse, but then he had... You know, he yep. had a couple shows, and he had a couple yeah. books, and he was a governor. So, you know, mm-hmm. that, that – and, and Jesse did save his money, which was great. But, I mean, there's a uh, – you know, all of a sudden, you know, when I quit wrestling, I was 50 years old. 
And I thought, what the hell am I going to do now? You quit at 50? How old are you now? I'll be 65. Uh, Honest to God, you look great. Well, I've taken a lot of supplements. Along with the steroids. Okay, no. <laughs> and the alcohol. So you, and the alcohol. <laughs> so you were an athlete until you were 50. Yes. Well, Man, he, what he, other sport is like that? Well, Ric Flair. He's he's 65, God. and he is still oh. wrestling. He is still wrestling. But oh. he has, he has other consequences. I made a mistake of calling Bobby Heenan. Instead of the yeah, brain, I called him the, the weasel. Yes. On the oh, air. God. I called him Bobby the Weasel Heenan. Oh, God. And he turned around on the air and said, I'll snap your neck like a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Don? We go to a commercial break. <laughs> we just hug. <laughs> people, people ask me who the greatest personality in, in my air was. And Bobby Heenan was what I by far the Easy. best. Yeah. He, he, he gave the people night after night everything they wanted. He was incredible in the ring. He was so unselfish. And look at all the guys that he managed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was incredible. And, and he, he was so great at talking. You know, he only had an eighth-grade education. And now, I don't know if you know this, but he had uh, oral, surgery, oral cancer, and he lost his whole lower jaw. This oh, has been five God. years ago. And he's fed through a tube, and he can't talk. Oh, and it's so sad to see him because... There was nobody quicker, you know, and, and he used to drink all the time. He was a, a, and he never got drunk. And I remember a short little story. We're coming back from Denver. We wrestled in Denver on Friday night. We take the early uh, flight home. We get back to Minneapolis at nine thirty or something, and then we had to drive over to WTC, WTCN and do TV. Oh, TCN. So yeah. Vernon Wally would sit there at this desk, and they had all the the promos and the the matches that were going to be taped. So. Bobby wanted to see, you know, where his guys were going to be. So Bobby leans over uh, Vern and Wally, and all of a sudden, Vern looks up at him, and he says, Damn you, Heenan, you've been drinking. And Bobby looked at him, and he says, You can't smell vodka. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you can. keep dropping so do the clips on this episode of the best of the tom bernard podcast brought to you by bradshaw and bryant great clips this week from eric rivenis mike kaplan and jumping jim brunzel thanks for listening everybody and we will see you next week